and welcome back to our Bible study. Uh, we are tackling the pastoral letters uh, in this unit. Uh, the pastoral letters uh, is a common uh, phrase used to refer to First and Second Timothy and Titus. These three letters that Paul wrote to, uh, we say, young ministers or young evangelists or young preachers sometimes, but Timothy uh, was, was pushing middle age by the time uh, this was written, we think. But Paul is addressing various challenges that they're facing in their area and their churches and trying to help them become better at the job of ministry and, and um, have greater success. And in First and Second Timothy, he's talking to Timothy, who is in a place called Ephesus, where there are many, many challenges to preaching the gospel. Uh, a lot of false prophets, a lot of other religions that co-opt the name of Jesus, that introduce into supposedly Christian worship uh, uh, all sorts of debauchery, sexual immorality, and the like, uh, that Paul knew was there. He saw it coming. We read in Acts when he's in Ephesus and he spends all this time there that he knows it's going to be a tough go of it there, but he leaves Timothy to do that work. And now he writes to him. And we dealt last time with uh, th this idea of women and men and their various roles in church uh, leadership and in church settings. And that's challenging. And that is a, uh, a, a difficult thing to parse and to put into our modern context, but we, we did our best, uh, and we know that there are differences of opinion on those things, and that's fine. Uh, we accept that, uh, some that we agree with, some that we disagree with, but the bottom line is what we are called to is a pureness of heart and a modesty of our attitude when we're, we're uh, speaking to God, interacting with God, and interacting with one another as to the uh, role of gender. Uh, let's do remember that we're reading a letter written from Paul to Timothy, not to us, but it is for our benefit to understand how Paul tried to approach the problem that he was dealing with in Ephesus. Does that apply to us today? I think we have to use a little discernment in figuring that out, but uh, certainly understand there's reason, reasonable disagreements on all sides. Most important thing is we shouldn't let that... Um, divide us. We shouldn't let that destroy us. God is bigger than that, and we can sort those problems um, with prayer and with earnesty and honesty. But we're into chapter 3 today, and chapter 3 gives us um, a list of qualifications. This is typically where we go when in our churches we are appointing elders. Now, I want to speak a little bit to elderships because um, you may not all be familiar with them. In the churches of Christ, uh, the tradition that we come from, that I myself come from, uh, each congregation is independent. It's autonomous. There is no um, national convention. There is no central authority that dictates the doctrine and the rules that ordains the ministers or assigns pastors to a particular parish. We don't do that. We are independent, autonomous uh, congregations. That trend seems to be making a comeback, by the way, and I think that's a good thing uh, because I believe that's a, a biblical example for how churches should be, should be run. Uh, and that's no disrespect to any other group, but there's some advantages to independence and autonomy. So we have that. So um, we, we hire a preacher or various ministers, but all the business of the congregation, all the decisions and, and the like are made by an eldership. I know in some congregations you might have a, an elder board or you might have a board of directors or a board of trustees uh, where, where you're at. Um, and, and they're all kind of flavors of the same thing. But I want you to understand that when I talk about elders, as the Bible defines it, that's a little different. 
There's various words that are used to define elder or used in place of elder. Uh, in this particular version I'm using, um, the translation is overseer, okay? Um, the word there uh, that is um, in, in the Greek is um, uh, presbyteros, presbyteros, which if you look at the root is presbyter, uh, or you might be familiar with the term Presbyterian, which is a denomination of Christianity. So um, that's where they get that, that term because the Presbyterian church was based on the idea of overseers and elders uh, operating and running the churches. Uh, it was kind of the, the um, Anglican church was split amongst the Presbyterians and the um, uh, Episcopalians, and they had different, uh, different views on church governance. That history lesson is free of charge and won't be on the test. But the point is, in the Greek, the word that's used there when Paul wrote this was pres presbyteros, um, which we get the word presbyter from. We also translate that as elder, bishop, overseer, and my personal favorite, shepherd. Because I think that the role of a shepherd might be the best description of what an elder is to be or an overseer is to be. It is unfortunate <clears throat> that too often this has become an office of the church to which one is elected. And very often in churches, you will find that there are people who are successful in business or who have been at that church a long time or have some position. And um, uh, that's not always the best choice. We're looking for people who are diligent and discerning and dedicated to the idea of shepherding of leading, of guiding, and developing faith amongst the people that are a part of their congregation. These aren't just people running a business. They're not just um, overseeing a, a nonprofit organization. They are uh, impacting and shaping people and putting them in the best position to succeed uh, spiritually. And I think we need to be very careful of understanding what that is, though it is challenging because we see all around us the examples um, where it has become more that way. It has drifted that way. And so Paul here gives us a great reminder when he instructs Timothy, hey, you need to appoint some people to look after this. You need to put some people in place who are going to make the decisions and who are going to provide the leadership. Um, almost every kind of church nowadays has some sort of leadership structure. If you're part of a larger denomination, you have the denominational structure. If you're an independent or autonomous church, um, then you probably have a board that oversees you locally. Um, now, you may not have anything at all like that. Uh, a lot of the small, more rural congregations in the Churches of Christ, they don't have um, elderships. They, they'll have monthly business meetings where everybody gets together and talks about everything, looks at the budget, makes decisions, but we don't have formal elders um, because we may not have enough people, uh, enough qualified people for that or people who desire it. And that's okay, too. That's okay. Um, this is never given as a requirement. It's given as an ideal. It's given as um, instruction to Timothy for the situation in Ephesus. But the list of qualifications he gives here, he says, hey, you need to find some people that can do uh, this job of shepherding and overseeing and guiding to get this church through some difficult times in a difficult place. And here's what you need to look for. So he gives a job description, really. Um, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there's qualification number one. you got to want it. you got to desire it. You, you, know, you can't 
force somebody to take on that role. Uh, I've known some really great people uh, who would have made great elders that didn't want to do it. And that means they shouldn't do it then. You know, they got to follow their conscience, follow their heart. Um, and, and it said here, it, you know, wanting to be in that role, if you want to be a leader, then you need to show that you desire it. I mean, work for it. You know, if, if you're a part of an organization, you want to move up and you want to lead and you want to have um, opportunities to shape policy and direction, well, talk to somebody about that. Ask, what does it take for me to get to that level? What are they looking for at that level? How can I be more active in these areas? Well, do it. And if you're part of a church and you say, well, I want to be a part of the leadership one day. I want to help to guide and to, you know, there's no hubris involved in, 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 in thinking that's what you want to do. Um, that's simply someone who, who has decided that's what they want to be. That's how they see themselves and that's what they envision. And so they want to be a part of that. Um, so desire it. Okay, now verse 2, therefore, an overseer, and again, you can put in there presbyter, bishop, uh, elder, shepherd. An overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. They're, they're, you, wouldn't eat, you would laugh if someone even suggested that they might have done something wrong or um, unseemly. So above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Right, let's back up a little. Husband of one wife. So we want someone who is, who has a stable home life, who has a stable marital situation. Now, does that mean that anyone who, who's maybe been married a second time is disqualified? Nah, I don't know. You know, I always heard that. I always heard it said, well, this person, you know, they were married before. Um, their spouse died and they got married again. Well, they're no longer the husband of one wife. Well, I don't know about that. Or, well, that person, you know, they, they, the, they had problems and the, the wife left or there was a divorce, but he's married again. Well, I don't know if he's qualified. You know, I heard those kinds of things. People like to pick apart these, these kinds of rules here. And I just, yeah, I got to step back and say, first of all, for as long as I've ever read this passage, when I see the husband of one wife, all I think of is he can't be a polygamist. This can't be someone who's married to more than one person at a time. I don't think, I don't believe that a person is disqualified if they their first spouse died and they marry again. I don't think the person's disqualified, depending on the circumstances, if they went through a divorce and they're married again. I think a lot depends on the circumstances of that divorce and 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 that sort of thing. I do, but um, let's don't. Yeah, and by the way, remember where they were. Remember in Ephesus that there were influences and there was evidence of those influences. And bigamy was one of those, having multiple wives. Uh, multiple loyalties, um, demands on you because of it. And they're saying, hey, make sure you find someone that just has the one spouse, you know, it, because that's, a lot of this is way more practical than we make it. We make it very holy, and it is holy, but we lose some of the practical reasons for why God is asking of these things. Sober-minded, very important, must be kind of level-headed, self-controlled, not impulsive respectable. Now, is that because we want the great business leader, the great administrator, or someone who's well-known? No, it's not a prestige thing. But we want to build relationships in the community, and therefore, we want uh, to know that those who are leading, guiding, and shaping have a reputation in the community that's respected. Hospitable, boy, that's so important in Scripture. We see that one pop up a lot. Be hospitable. Uh, able to teach, so that's that's important. You want someone who is capable of explaining and shaping and framing the things that the Scripture teaches. 
uh, not a drunkard. So we don't want someone who is, uh, it doesn't say someone who, who, who drinks, uh, it just a drunkard. This is someone who is, who does not have the self-discipline or self-control when it comes to alcohol. This is someone who overindulges. This is someone who loses control of themselves uh, with certain things, certain substances. This is the this is demonstrative of a person whose temperament is not sober-minded and self-controlled. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not somebody given to argument. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For Now that, again, that doesn't mean under the thumb, you know, abusive. It just means you're raising your family in such a way that you demonstrate that you can command respect, that you have wisdom, that you are able to teach. And it says if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see how serious this is? How serious it is? One of your job qualifications is you better have things together at home. If you don't have your life together at home, you're not fit to lead God's people in a church setting. I don't know that a lot of our elderships and church boards or whatever you want to call it take that that seriously. I don't know how many of them think about that. Now, I'm sure a lot do, but I, I hope it's more. Think about that, that your personal life demonstrates what you're capable of in that more public life and in that eldership position, in that bishop or um, overseer, presbyter, shepherd position, what you're capable of is supposed to be judged by your, the evidence of how you lead your household. Um, wow. He must not be a recent convert. That's an interesting one. We don't want someone who's fresh, who's new, who's just learning. Uh, and the reason is they may become puffed up with conceit and uh, fall into condemnation of the devil. That's very true. This insightful stuff from Paul. If I'm brand new and all of a sudden I'm getting appointed to leadership roles, whew, man, I'm going to be full of myself. Moreover, verse 7, he must be thought, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So again, we want a quality reputation. Now, we shift here to a different group. So we have our overseers, our elders, our shepherds. There's another group called deacons. Again, this is a term that differs church to church, congregation to congregation. You may use deacons differently. I'll tell you, in the churches of Christ, deacons are usually younger men, um, and it's men in the churches of Christ because that's that's the tradition that, that men are in those roles. Uh, men are selected, uh, younger usually, early 30s, mid-30s, early 40s in that range. Um, and they're, given, they're put in charge of a particular task because the deacon role it has originated from there's work to be done. There's things that need doing. There's people that need served. There's projects that need taken on, right? So that's what deacons are to do. And the elders or the shepherds are the spiritual guidance. And so if you structure a modern congregation that way, what you often find is you have your older people who are elders because they've been around a long time and they're the spiritual guides and they do the hiring and firing of the ministers and they manage the money. And then the deacons, uh, they're in charge of things like building maintenance or um, taking care of the, the, the vehicles that might be a part of the, the church uh, um, fleet. 
Uh, you might have someone who's in responsible for planning the Bible classes or something like that. So you have deacons at different levels who are responsible for different things. Now, sometimes this just becomes the eldership farm team, and that's kind of a joke in the churches of Christ, that the deacons are just elders in training. That's not the case. And, and let's talk about what it means then. Remember the word um, presbyteros, which is the Greek that we get overseer, elder, bishop, and presbyter, and shepherd from. Well, diakonos, which is the Greek root word for deacon. Now, notice something about these. Here are two words that were not really translated into an English equivalent um, initially. Now, we do have in some of our uh, more modern translations where they, these things have been adjusted. But you have presbyteros, and you end up with presbyter. And in the mod more modern translations, you get things like overseer and elder. But we get this whole—we we get a word, you know, in shepherd and all the all the like. Pastor is another uh, acceptable translation of, of that word. But we fit those in. Deacon is one that's really misunderstood because we didn't translate it right. And the reason for that, if you know some of the history of it, when the Bible's being translated into English, you already have some institutional churches and structures that are in existence. And the translators are looking at these words and going, we really want to preserve our structure and our leadership and our power. So we need to make sure these words reflect what we're doing. So, for instance, the word that we say is church in Scripture is ecclesia. Ecclesia doesn't mean church. Ecclesia means a gathered people, a congregation, a group of believers who are called out uh, to meeting. So we don't translate it that way because if the Bible were... Uh, translated according to the language faithfully, it would say something like, um, you know, referring to the gathered people or the called people are the bride of Christ instead of the church is the bride of Christ. Um, and the reason that that was important back then for those translating was they had a church and they wanted to emphasize the power and institution of the central church, not of the congregation. And so ecclesia became church rather than what it means, and that is gathered people. In the same way, uh, deacon is the word we get from diakonos, which actually means servant. We actually find the word elsewhere in Scripture translated as servant, but in these instances, they translated it and made it, well, transliterated it, made a new word, uh, which is just finding the English equivalent of each letter and putting it together, and we've got a word now. Same thing was done with baptism uh, from baptizo. So here we have deacon, but I don't want you to be confused. I want you to understand what this is. The elders, the presbyters, the bishops, the, the, the pastor, the overseer, the shepherd, that's, that's the spiritual guide and leader and shaper of a congregation. The deacons, they're doing a little bit more of the work on the ground. They're servants. Again, because of the word change, because of the word usage, we make this into more of an official title to which someone is appointed. And I don't know that's how the early church really functioned. And I don't know that's how our churches need to be functioning now, but that's not for me to decide. I just hope we can be careful not slipping too much into deacon being this church office sort of mentality, this elected position to which someone holds, nor are they overseers in waiting or elders in training. These are servants. That's what the word means. And they've been called and asked to serve in a particular area or do a particular task, and that's what they're doing. Uh, and that's how it was in the first century. 
There are many people called deacon or deaconess, which creates some controversy because you have women who are deacons. Paul writes about them. And I mentioned uh, last time the same person that wrote about uh, women needing to remain silent also sent a woman to Rome to proclaim his letter to the Christians there. So let's be careful saying Paul believed this about women wholeheartedly. He, he, he was talking about it in a specific situation, and we should be cautious there. And in the same way, he refers to women as deacons, and that throws a little wrench, and, and people go, well, it just means servant. Diakonos means servant. Um, okay, then. It either means servant, and it's just a, a servant that has been selected to serve in a particular way, or it, it's, it, it, it is an official church office that has strict rules about who can and who can't, but it can't be both just because there's a contradiction. Okay, so let's take it for what it is. Do we have deacons in our churches? Sure. Um, that That is a bit of a man-made tradition that's kind of mixed in with a scriptural tradition. But again, recognize what the role is. And if we're looking for people to take on that role, this is where we go, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, and just remember, they're servants. They're servants. And so they're not officers of the church. They're servants. And um, that's what the word means. That's what the name means. But what do we look for when we need servants in the church to work in certain areas? Well, let's look. Deacons, verse 8, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So here, much the same thing as the elder, right? They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Well, this is curious here, right? Um, hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. What is the mystery of faith? Well, uh, Paul talks a lot about the mystery of faith or the mystery of God and this idea of uncovering something about faith. Um, I think this is about the, the, the story of faith, the story of salvation, because it is a mystery. It's mysterious how our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's mysterious how we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. And if you hold on to that, and by hold here he means accept, if they accept or have faith in this mystery, this beautiful story in which God does things we can't see or sometimes understand, if you hold on to that and you believe in that with a clear conscience, meaning you don't have anything that holds you back because you are free from sin and you are dedicated fully to Jesus Christ. Well, then they got to be tested. We need to check out on these people and see. And if they can prove themselves blameless, then, then it is for them. Now we have some qualifications for the wives. Listen to this. Wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we see much the same kind of ideas and concept, but Paul's being specific. Hey, you need, you know, when you get ready to select these people who are going to help lead, guide, and shape, and direct, this is what you need to look for. Uh, this is just good practical advice, and I think we ought to see it that way. I think we do get caught up in the rules about qualifi qualifications for these church titles when we really need to understand that Paul is Paul's giving some really good advice about what to look for for people who will lead. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he quotes here, and let's read this at the end of, of, uh, of chapter 3. Uh, toward the end of chapter 3, rather. He was, this is uh, verse, where did I go? Uh, 16, the end of verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And this is what we're told is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he quotes here uh, this passage. And, um, and it is a proclamation of who Jesus is. It's a creed, if you will. Uh, it is a proclamation, an announcement of what we believe about Jesus Christ. He was manifest in the, in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And that, the fact that Jesus came and did all this and, and left and he's coming back again, there's the mystery of godliness. How can this be? How does this work? It just does. Some things I can't explain, but it does. And it works because of Jesus. We need leaders in our Christian communities. We need those who will lead and guide spiritually. We need those who will get their hands dirty and do some work. And in each case, we need to select amongst ourselves people who are qualified and capable for that task. And that's what chapter 3 is about. And then we're going to move from there. We're going to talk about what happens uh, when people turn from this and leave the faith and struggle. We're going to continue reading this wonderful letter in which Paul is imparting his wisdom to his fellow evangelist and son in the faith. And I hope you'll join us for that as well right here next time as we continue in 1 Timothy.